When Crosby Norix graduated from college, she couldn't find a job. Instead, she founded a company. I went to figure out where strategy exists within fashion public relations. And I was also curious about the experience of the women working inside of the field, because from my perspective, they were really driving a lot of the messaging that would then translate into someone wanting to purchase a particular garment. For the past 15 years, PR Couture has served as a career platform and source book for lifestyle communicators. I spoke with Norix about the company's evolution, how she mastered the pivot, and how being authentic to her own personal and professional journey has allowed her to help more women become visible in business. Hi, this is Crosby Norix, and this is a lesson on being seen. Crosby, what is your earliest memory of being creative? Most of my memories start around three and a half, four, and I remember making perfume out of flowers, going out into the garden, picking them, mushing them all up together, sticking them into an ice cube or water, and like making, yeah, making little magic fairy princess perfume, probably. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so beautiful. I saw a a recording of yours where you got the lead in the school play and you (laughs) gave up the lead in the school play. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, my kindergarten play gone wrong or right. So yes, in kindergarten, all the kindergartners were doing the nativity part of the Christmas play and they pulled my name magically out of the marble jar or whatever to be married. That felt very exciting to be randomly picked and given this role. But I had a problem and that problem was related to the costume that they had chosen for Mary. It was this very sort of drab peasant garb. And I really didn't want to wear that. And so I went up to my teacher and I asked if I could be an angel instead, because the angels got to wear these beautiful white dresses, that kind of crinkly golden crown, halo of the head. <laughs> and that was far more my aesthetic preference as a young girl in the early 80s. And yeah, so I basically turned down the part because of the outfit and was very happy to just be in the ensemble cast as 20 or 30 angels as opposed to right there in front. My mom thought that was particularly hilarious. I went rogue. I was Mm -hmm. like, I love being the star, but I cannot wear that. (laughs) That was an indicator of my career path, perhaps. (laughs) Fashion was a love of yours from the get-go. What did you study in school? How did you get to where you are now? I went to a small liberal arts college intending to do something fashion related, even though that wasn't an option. It felt like it was enough of a kind of creative playground that I could figure it out. So there were opportunities to design your own major, interesting ways to get around that. But the closest thing that sounded interesting to me at the time was like international studies. And so I had this international studies professor 
because I also loved travel and language. And so I was exploring. I wasn't completely like, this has to be my career path. I had actually made a really conscious decision not to go to fashion school and to go to, you know, real college. And why? Why is that? Because as much as I loved dress up and clothing and all of that as a form of self-expression. I was raised in a family of you know, academics and teachers, and there were other interests that I wanted to explore and other you know, topics of interest. And so I wanted to be in a place where, where that was possible. And so I was like, I could always do that later, but going to more of a traditional college experience was more interesting to me. And I got a really great scholarship to the school, and it just seemed to make a lot of sense to go there. But I show up to my advisor meeting this lovely man who is the international studies chair fashion and textiles and traveling and I'd love to be maybe like a buyer for anthropology he's just that's wonderful and I have no idea what to do with you so very kindly I might not be the best steward of your future and so I just started taking classes and things that were interesting to me and inadvertently ended up with a combined major in media studies which was very much film at that time and then gender feminist studies So I took a lot of classes in that kind of intersection of female representation in media, and then also had this other interest of really historically looking at like goddess mythology, women in religion, also took a lot of sort of feminist theory classes. I read a 20 page paper on menstruation. Like it was just, it was an exploratory time. It's the curiosity. And I've got to say it's common with creatives to be so multifaceted with big brains, expansive brains, and the thoughts seemingly to outsiders don't interconnect, but they do. You're working on your connection. Yeah. 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 So I ended up doing a study abroad at the London College of Fashions, scratched that itch, came Mm -hmm. back, did a documentary that was really about how getting ready to go out with your friends is almost more fun than the actual event itself, which felt very topical to me as like a 20 something. Now I I look back on it and go, who's going, who goes anywhere? Who does anything? But at the time that was really interesting. And so we're talking about the community that goes on and the way that women congregate together to get ready to then go out for a night on the town. And I figured I did something called Fashion Playground where I explored the idea of what feminist fashion would look like. And yeah, it just was like a... So what does feminist fashion look like? I have to ask because I'm, this is... Oh my goodness. A couple of the things I did, I, we had to create your own kind of t-shirt area. I remember my favorite was a pair of three quarter length gloves that I had dyed. And then I had written poetry about my experience as a woman with like red Sharpie on the gloves themselves. Yeah, for me at that time, it was about both slogan, but it was also about deconstructing. Like we had this kind of deconstructed bride dress that was in the beginning. Yeah, so it was, it was yeah, it was a lot of kind of mixing together these quintessential depictions, what women wear, what women are supposed to wear. Eventually I came to, to a graduate program. That's why I ended up moving to San Diego. So I moved here for a master's program in mass communication and did the same thing. It's like, okay, we can always find a way to to introduce fashion into whatever we're talking about. So undergrad, it was fashion and media and feminist theory. And then in public relations, it became, oh, you can do PR for fashion. That might be a career thing for me because I really, I love writing. I love design. I love conceptualizing. And also this is like a real job that you can have (laughs) that Mm -hmm. people pay you for. And so I got really curious about all of that. And so I ended up writing 
a graduate thesis about similar theoretical underpinnings of feminism, dress theory, marketing, public relations, and tried to posit a framework specific to fashion PR. I don't think I've ever been like smarter than I was in those months <laughs> that I wrote that thing. And, and, and you I, did it also because people weren't doing it at that time. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. You do it a Google search about fashion PR. There were like four results. Often, anytime you're talking about fashion or really just anything that traditionally or more stereotypically is like women's Feminine. purview, it yes. just gets relegated. It's the same kind of like craft versus art debate. And so I felt like that was happening where it was like, oh, that's not real PR, or that's just like this other sector that we don't want to look at. It's not actually strategic. It's just all about this one trick publicity pony. And I was like, that cannot be true. So I went to figure out where strategy exists within fashion public relations. And I was also curious about the experience of the women working inside of the field, because from my perspective, they were really driving a lot of the messaging mm. that would then translate into someone wanting to purchase a particular garment. And so I wondered what that experience was like, if they felt a sense of responsibility there, if they didn't, if the experience of working with a bunch of models around you all the time was disconcerting or whether it was emboldening. I just was curious again and went to New York, interviewed a bunch of people, did my best to put it all together and then was like, nobody's going to read this. And I'm still curious. I'm still interested. I still want a place to continue these conversations. I want to share what I uncovered. And it was right at the time that fashion blogs were starting up mm -hmm. and I was having so much fun. Mm -hmm. 2006, I was having yeah. so much fun finding women like me from all over the country who were posting their interesting, crazy outfits and leaving comments. It was this really nice time before the commodification and the capitalist stomp on all of it. It was just like <laughs> girls finding each other and like being internet friends and leaving supportive comments. Before the VCs <laughs> decided that women were market. Right. Yeah, before it became yeah, what it is today. Mm -hmm. And for better or worse, I decided that instead of just doing the traditional outfit thing, I instead wanted to take what I've been learning in my thesis and create a blog that was really about the role of communication in getting us to wear what we wear and want what we want and to align ourselves, our identity with this brand or that brand. And I wanted to shed some light into who were the women who were driving all of that and making those decisions. And I had done some work in the field, but I was I still had a lot of questions about what it actually looked like behind the curtain. Because again, this was a time when you couldn't go and binge somebody's Instagram feed to get a real sense of what they were doing. There was mm -hmm. nothing. And so it really started with interviewing whoever I could find, Google alerts, combing LinkedIn, trying to find anybody that was online enough for me to be able to discover them and then inviting them, asking them questions. And that's really how it all started. Yeah. And so now PR Couture is a resource, not only for publicists, but for people who are looking for publicists. And Jessica, who's been on my team for three years now, I found her via PR Couture. So we have a really special relationship yes. with you guys. You've been in business since 2006. And one of the things I admire about what I've watched you build is that you seem to pivot quite beautifully with whatever is happening in the culture of the conversation. And now uh, understanding more about your background, I can understand why. Can you tell me though, what that instinct is for the pivot? The pivot never feels good. 
while it's happening. <laughs> so I'm glad that the experience on the other end is, oh, of course, look at this delightful. Uh, <laughs> the reality is it's one of those moments of, oh, I thought that like I could go to college and then I would be done with school. Or I thought that I would build a business and then I would be done having to build a bit. And it's always changing. I could like become a mom and then that would be done. And it would be like, it wouldn't be changing every five minutes when my kid shows up being a completely different person from day to day, right? Like we are never done. And, and it's that recognition that is the work is stewarding whatever it is and being available to what is and being willing to shift. And it comes down to a deep belief in my own capabilities and a belief in my audience and my clients and customers. I'm a big proponent of active listening, listening not to respond, but really listening just to hold space and to consider what somebody else is sharing. And if I am doing a good job of active listening with my audience, and if I am, and with myself, and if I you know, have the sort of emotional intelligence to pick up on some of those more subtle cues, which is the gift of the introvert. We just, we notice things that others don't often notice. Then I can trust because I've done it before and because I get a little sense that we need to go to a different place or because my own interests have shifted. I am no longer 26 trying to get a job in fashion PR. So I now have those 15 years of experience running this online niche-based platform thing. I've had multiple different experiences with different types of clients, different offers. I've invested in different coaches and programs where I've learned different strategies. And so all of that informs what I'm interested in, what I'm feeling curious about, what I'm feeling called to share. And most often, if I'm picking up on it, my audiences too, they're just not saying it or they haven't necessarily thought about it in exactly that same way. Pierre Couture is as much a natural evolution of my own professional and personal journey as anything. And what it enables me to do is help more women at more stages of life, right? The motherhood piece is such a big one. Like now I have real hesitation around investing in any type of business coaching or whatever with someone who has not had the experience of being a parent because it's such a shift. If I hadn't been a freelance consultant, I would not be in any position to help someone who decides I'm not doing this whole up the ladder nonsense inside this agency. I'm going to do my own thing my own way if I had not done that. So I have new skills and I have new awareness and I have new curiosity all the time. And so my job is to bring whatever that is back to my business and back to my clients. That's really how it comes to happen. And then it's, it's a lot of like conversations with friends and text messages and doodling in notebooks and creating different business models and trying to get down on paper visually what in the world my business even is right now. And like, where do I want it to? And there's so many notebooks, so many doodles and circles and arrows and all of that. <laughs> but what's so great about it is that, that it is authentic to you. You didn't say, I'm not the 26-year-old, but I really have to desperately hold on to this idea because it's the only one that made me money. What you said was, no, I'm going to be in service to my curiosity and my creativity and move the business in whatever direction it needs to go. And that's what's really important. I, I believe in the conversation about visibility. Yeah, absolutely. Some businesses do this. They look at an opening in the market and they go, ooh, there's an audience that needs something. Let's build something that they can buy. And then there's, I myself had a need. I myself see where this gap is. And I'm going to create that out of service versus out of profit, potential right. profit. It is remarkable how often 
I can ask the question of a potential. So what do you stand for? What's your vision? What's your vision? And they, they've never done the work. And if they haven't, they have no ability. They're like, we're looking for you to tell us that you I can't give you the bones of your business. I can't give you your soul. Sorry. I don't. <laughs> yes, I can't. Yes. I am not a, your own soul. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And it's the same thing. Those clients that can't answer those questions are the same ones that were like, ooh, this is something that women obviously want. Let's create a whole <laughs> Women. Yes, that's right. Yes. No, right. I totally. And there have been so many startups through the years, even specifically in fashion, where I just men are trying to solve a problem that does not exist for us. Or it's just, we don't actually need a technology to help us do that. We just shop together. We don't need to be able to automatically text, tweet, Facebook message our like try on experience with our best friend, like through Facebook. <laughs> no, we just take a anyway. Yes. So for me, my business has to also work for me and inspire me or I will shrivel up and die. You're really encouraging women to look at themselves as thought leaders, but you're wanting to, I believe, rewrite this definition a little bit or to change the perception of what we might think a thought leader is. Can you speak to it? Yeah. One of the challenges in public relations specifically, but really in any service-based business, is that it often posits that the role of that service provider is to be completely behind the scenes. In PR, that's it's not about me. It's about the client. Like I am not even here, even though you know, it's all happening and, and being driven by that publicist, that PR professional. And that's a mindset that we're hoping to shift at PR Couture because of the way that the industry has changed, because of the access that we now have to say what we want, to build our own platforms, to come out of status quo and say, I see things a little bit differently, or I'm a little bit different. I'm an option for you. And let me tell you a little bit about what that is and what that would look like. I don't believe that anyone benefits from women or anyone keeping their brilliance hidden. And and, and also, it's interesting that PR is such a feminized field because it also reflects a lot of the ways that we are socialized to be these sort of supporting characters. So it, it does not surprise me that PR attracts a lot of women. And also because of that, it's really important that we start to unpack that and to allow ourselves to have a little bit of the spotlight. And the thought leadership piece, we think of it as, oh, that's the guy with his book at the big fancy conference. That's not me. But we all have perspective, experiences, points of view on how things should and shouldn't be done within our own industry. And we need to hear from one another. We need to have those conversations and, and to be discovered too is the other piece, right? With the ways in which we're going about trying to find people that we want to hire, we're doing a search. We're finding people through keywords and hashtags. And if you're not there, you're missing out. You're downplaying what's possible for you by not even you know showing up to play. Yes. Yeah, so there's two points here because this is also a conversation about visibility. And from my perspective, even in the hiring of publicists, I'm really mindful with clients of recommending that they do that after they establish their own voice in a specific way so that they can find the professional who aligns with their values so that they don't rely on the PR professional because you are taking it very thoughtfully and 
very strategically, but not everyone does. This can be a gateway profession. Again, for a lot of women, are I feel not pushed into it, but it suggests, oh, you should go into PR. You're friendly. You're perky. You you're understand personable. social media. Yeah. yeah. you Social media, you're that girl. You can just do that. So there are people who end up there as a transition profession, the similar to acting. People end up as a transition profession, people who are energy, people who understand emotion, right? As a gateway. The problem is that a professional is a professional. And so once you have chosen to make this your career, then you do have strategic ways of communicating. And from my perspective, you want to align yourself as an artist, as a creator with someone who really respects and understands your values and can contribute to the expansion of that message out. So that's the first thing. But visibility, let's talk about visibility because you mentioned keywords, you mentioned these things. So a lot of clients are introverts. They are freaked out about being visible. What's your message to them? So I'm a card-carrying INFJ. I (laughs) did not thrive in the more traditional sort of agency environment where a lot of what you're given at that entry level is very close to just cold calling. I did not enjoy having to call somebody up on the phone. Like I could barely make a dentist appointment or like order a pizza on the phone. Now I have to call some fancy pants editor in New York and convince her in 30 seconds to pay attention to my tiny local client that is really not doing anything. All that mind blowing. I'm feeling stressed. That really, feeling stressed. I, I would just wake up and I'm in San Diego. So I have to get up at like six in the morning because you're supposed to pay them at the minute that they come into the office. And it was so much stress. And when I discovered social media and transitioned more to the digital side, it was like, oh, I'm great behind an email. I'm quippy. (laughs) I'm quippy as shit on Twitter. That's fine. (laughs) Like I can live there. And suddenly I started to feel so much better and realized that what felt hard about my job was not the fact that I was bad at it. It's that the structure and the way in which I was doing it was in opposition to my natural preference way of being, right? Like I could teach myself and I can jump into extroversion land for an amount of time. But when it comes to visibility, we often think too big, too fast. We think that it is opening us up to millions of people looking and judging and not wanting us to succeed. It feels unsafe, which is a valid critique of the way in which women are sometimes pushed into visibility. If you grew up in a world and time and place and experience where being seen was actually very unsafe mm-hmm. and caused trauma. Who, who wants to hop onto Zoot, like pointing around and jumping up and down when like being seen? So there's some untangling that needs to happen. Especially because in this culture, like the way that women should be seen is sexualized. Right? Like you've got your push-up bra, your booty. I'm on TikTok, but she looks 18 and she's belly dancing. And I'm like, oh my God, who is your mother? And and at the same time, <laughs> I'm also thinking to myself, I'm so glad that she feels comfortable enough to express herself sexually. Like it's, it's such a catch-22 for me, but visibility traditionally is about hyper-sexualization of women. That's a lot of what it is when true visibility is so internal. Yes. The personal branding, like the whole thing, it's really an invitation to personal discovery. 
the more that you know yourself, trust yourself, the more that you set yourself up to be in community with like-minded supporters of you and of your work, it's incredibly validating and inspiring to be in community with others who only wish for your greatest expression and your greatest sort of evolution and to receive positive feedback when you show up without the trappings of the filter that makes your lips look three times their size, when you can speak directly about a marketing concept without belly dancing at the first time and have it work, right? Like Mm -hmm. we cut off our ability to be accepted and loved in a certain way by not allowing ourselves to be seen. And so that's the real opportunity. If you can figure out the channels and the methods of visibility that don't put you into a panicked state, start small, start with what's easy. If you're great with writing, right, we've got long form essays, we've got contributed content, we've got self-publishing books available. If you are more of a fly by the seat of your pants, brilliance comes out of my mouth when I'm just riffing, (laughs) just turn on your video and Pretend like you're answering a question from a client and then cut that up and put that up. So it's finding the ways that are going to work for you. We owe it to ourselves to allow ourselves to be seen and to allow our right clients, our right people to be able to discover us, to be able to learn from us, to feel inspired by us. And it's a real bummer if we don't give ourselves that opportunity and allow us to learn the lesson that we can be 100% who we are. And that is more than enough to run a successful company, to have community of supporting individuals, that our voice and perspective and opinions matter. We talk a lot about the way women lead on this podcast. Do you think women lead differently? And if yes, would you go as far to say that it's feminine leadership? This is obviously a huge generalization because I've definitely worked for women for whom this was not the case. But again, because we're socialized to often be that sort of supporting character, when a woman is in a position of leadership, there's still a natural tendency to consider the collective sort of over the individual to care about and to consider the emotional health and the interpersonal dynamics inside of an organization as opposed to just the numbers and productivity. There's also a sense of a natural tendency toward kind of collaboration Mm -hmm. and to, of course, examine any problems or opportunities through that lens of being a woman or identifying as a woman, which can often open up new solutions, new priorities, new ways of affecting just the entire structure of whatever that organization is. Conversely, there are some struggles that are unique to that, really the the tendency toward sort of people-pleasing and perfectionism, Um, thinking about some of the struggles that my clients have, who are many of whom are are agency owners, you're sort of working with a team. There can be some hesitation around giving direct feedback, resisting confrontation. I also see a lot of accepting less than what is required in a position, really wanting to work with someone to improve. Rather than calling them out to excellence. Is that what you mean? Rather than... Yeah. So rather than just saying like, this isn't working for me, this Mm -hmm. quality of this work, it's let's try to work together and find maybe a role that's a better fit for you. And just really wanting Mm -hmm. to invest in the person and make the person have a good experience. And sometimes that can be to the detriment of the leader. 
who's trying to take care of everyone at her own expense. So mm-hmm. Great. to me, the, the work of stepping into leadership and identifying as a leader, whether, and you can lead at any stage, right? You can lead as a CEO of a company, you can lead in your group team, what's it called? Like your group assignment, right? Like in high school, <laughs> that tendency <laughs> towards leadership, we either have it or we don't have it, or we have to learn how to do it. It's the work of self-belief and self-trust and a willingness to disrupt the norm and to be in that discomfort of being that dissenting voice and a, a willingness to really create those new structures and really ultimately just believing yourself capable and right for that role. Like I have the right to be here. I am capable of doing a good job here. And that again comes down to that sort of self-trust, self-belief piece. And we've touched on this, but 70% of the global PR industry is women. And yet when it comes to the leadership positions in corporations, especially those directors of communication are still held by men. Only two of the 10 largest agencies worldwide have women running their North American operations and that the salary for a woman in PR is $20,000 less compared to her male counterpart, which I thought was very interesting. So there's a very famous study called the Velvet Ghetto in the 80s. And then those statistics that I'm quoting were done in 2006, except for Finland, Finland has equal amounts of women, but this is because planning a family in Finland is always been equal to women having a role in the workplace and they call it the housewife culture never grained ground, which is so fascinating to me. I'm fascinated by them over there. We've had a guest from there. We should definitely plan a trip to Finland regardless. <laughs> we need one. Just, just explore. They're just got something like. in the water. They've got something over there happening. Or New Zealand. It's really nice in New, New Zealand. Zealand over there. Yeah. All, all kinds of the strides yeah. are happening in New Zealand. So you brought up, just addressed this, but what do you think that's about? And do you think that's why women move to start their own businesses? Yeah, a thousand thousand percent, especially in PR. And now I run this membership called The Coterie, where we really work with communication consultants and freelance PR professionals to help them figure out the business side of things in their first couple of years in business, grounded in that kind of thought leadership and visibility piece. But what we find, interestingly, a lot of PR professionals lost their jobs because of COVID. And many were like, okay, I'm just going to try this freelance thing. And then they try the freelancing and it actually works. And they're suddenly Mm. making way more money than they were making in their salaried position. They're not dealing with any of the the nonsense of, yes, what goes on. They have more control over when they work, how they work, who they work with. And given that, there's really no draw to try to go back and get another job if you can hack this other alternative. The other real big challenge that we have in public relations is related to diversity. And a lot of Black women in particular mm-hmm. are not able to get very far on the kind of agency or corporate track. Mm-hmm. And so for them, the only real option is to start, start my own thing. Business. Yeah. And it's not because 
they have some deep desire for entrepreneurship or the never ending hustle and all the kinds of, it's rough being the one in charge all the time, but it's because they really feel like it's the only option for them. The PR agency is reflective of the big businesses that are being served. So if you look at a big PR agency, one of the international been around forevers, those men are often in those positions of top of the chain leadership because men are in the positions of top of the chain leadership on the client side. And so there's some familiarity and expectation at that level. Mm -hmm. And many women get to a point where they get to that director level or even a VP position, or they're told there really isn't any room, or they figure out about the wage gap, or they find somebody belly dancing on TikTok telling them that they can have 50K months by sneezing or whatever the latest thing is. And they start to think I could do that, right? Like I'm smarter than all these dudes in the office anyway. Like I might as well give it a try. And there's good and bad to that, right? It's great that there's an opportunity to carve your own path. And also like that was left inside of those corporations. They become like these cancers, like running around still making decisions because they have dollars. But we do see it. Shifting. I do know so many women, some running their businesses according to the rules of the paradigm, but lots yep. going rogue, lots not doing that. And that's where the quantum change happens. That's what I'm saying too, that I slightly emerging is we've had these influencer, thought leaders, subject matter experts, they might be disrupting it a little bit, or it's just the fact that they're a woman that somehow like that already puts them in this category. But what I love that I'm seeing is business coaches, strategists, service providers who are just like, I'm doing absolutely none of that. I'm here for the misfits and the rebels and those of us that never felt like we fit in, those of us that are neurodivergent, I'm here for those. And I'm being loud and proud and visible and available Mm -hmm. for those who just have opted out or have been opted out. And Mm -hmm. that's really fun. It's fun to see people not getting all dolled up and fancy and delivering (laughs) thought leadership in their pajamas or (laughs) their intentionally dismantling the objectification or talking about it straight on, addressing it straight on. I remember a couple of my very first lives, I had some just like complete trolling that took me completely out of my ability to really show up. I didn't know what to do with these comments that were happening all the time. And the the fear of that can keep us a lot of times from just jumping in. And so when we see another woman like calling it out, naming it, embracing her anger and rape. Those are emotions and displays of feminine leadership that we don't often see. And so it's always very inspiring to me when I see somebody just, I'm not available for any of that. Yes, I'm in a female bot. I'm unavailable for, for all of that. And I'm charting this, yeah, completely rogue upside down path. Can you complete the sentence? My wish for every other woman is. To trust herself implicitly. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead.
Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. Our music was created by singer-songwriter Claire Hamill. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Mm-hmm.